The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. That was a prophecy which was written to exiles who had been displaced from their homeland because of their rebellion against God. We too are exiles. We are strangers, foreigners, aliens in a strange land. We have been displaced, separated from God's very presence because we rejected Him. Adam disobeyed. He was kicked out of the garden. And God could no longer walk with him because sin had entered into the world. And so we are looking for other prophecies through the Word of God, other messages of comfort that we can apply to our lives, messages that we can have hope in and security. These are not yet fulfilled words of prophecy which were written for our comfort. First, we looked at John chapter 14. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Just by way of reminder, going to refresh some of you, the minds. And then we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, of being caught up in the Lord, caught up in the air with, with those that have preceded us in death. And in chapter 5, the very next chapter, the next week, we looked at of, of not being destined to wrath. We also looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, the, the phrase there was imperishable inheritance, that we have an imperishable inheritance for us, a future that lies ahead for us, that God has reserved for us. He is predestined for us to walk in. Two weeks ago, we began in Revelation 21. I kind of suspected we wouldn't get through it all in one week. In fact, if we were to linger there, we could spend quite a bit of time. I can't remember in the how many years has it been? Ten years? Pastoring? Ever speaking Sunday morning at length on Revelation. So maybe it's due, but Revelation 21, I, we managed to go through the, the verses, if you want to turn there, if you, we managed to go through those verses two weeks ago rather slowly. Um, Julie was teasing me afterwards. She said, I can tell that you're excited about this. That was her nice way of saying you're going slow. <laughs> I shouldn't, I shouldn't, it's not really teasing her. She's not even here to defend that. She might nod in agreement. I am passionate about these verses, but I believe they're full of joy and comfort and hope, and hopefully you can get this out of it as well. We left off at verse 4, but by way of review, I want to just read this whole section of verses 1 through 7 as a refresher. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In my mind, from two weeks ago, there were two 
key takeaways from that message. I'm not sure how many takeaways you got out of it, but in my mind there were two. If you were taking notes, there were two. No, I'm kidding. God, firstly, will dwell among us. This is a key we saw in verse 3. God will dwell among us, or tabernacle among us. If you look at the root word in Greek, God came to live and dwell among us. That's what we read in John chapter 1, that He will tabernacle among us. The presence of God will literally permeate every square inch of the new world. He is going to dwell among us. You cannot get out of His presence. That's the, the, the wealth of that word, and I, don't, I want to rehash all that. You can go back and listen to that message from two weeks ago if you want. Verse 4, the second key thing is that there will be no more death. And we flipped over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and very quickly I was going through a bunch of verses, 26 through about 57 or so, and we looked at the last enemy of Christ, which it will be abolished, which is not Satan. The last enemy is death. That is the last thing, in that we in Christ, we partake of His new life spiritually now, but it won't be fully realized for us until death is completely defeated and we are with God forever. That is when we will reign over death and we can say, ha ha, Satan, be gone. Well, we can say that now, but death is still a reality in our world, is it not? Verse 4 says, no more death or mourning or crying. I don't know if you've ever wondered why there's two different words there for crying. There's no mourning or crying. Anytime I read stuff like that in English, I want to go back and figure out, why, why did you write that twice, John? What's going on here? Well, the root word for mourning in our Bibles actually comes from the root word or from the word suffering, which makes sense all on its own. No more death, no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain, but an even bigger Greek to English translation mix-up is actually about the latter word, crying, or as we have it translated in, in our Bibles as crying. John did not use this word crying with tears of what we think of, of, of water from the eyes crying. Rather, the word is of crying out or shouting out for calling upon the Lord. It's saying, oh Lord, save me, help me, pardon me, forgive me. It's crying out. There's going to be no need of calling upon anyone because we are with him from then on. So get that picture. It's, and then lastly, he says there's no more pain. And all God's people said, how many of you have ever been in pain? How many of you are in pain now? Glory be to God. No more pain. And so this morning we begin after all that good news with more good news that I didn't get to finish talking about. Verse 5. He who sits on the throne... Behold, I am making all things new. And he says to John, he says, right, for these words are faithful and true. This time John is hearing God the Father speak. The angel had been giving him a tour and he's telling him of all these things, write these things down, here's what's going to happen. But now he sees and hears God himself in this revelation, sees God himself speaking. And this is a promise that is so important that, that John is reminded to write these things down. God is saying, John, I just know there are going to be some people that need to hear these words. Write them down. Don't forget them, John. These are important. 
Perhaps you are one of these people. I want you to listen this morning. These words are faithful and true. Bask in these words of truth. Firstly, God with us. He will be with you. We know that He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. That His Spirit is with us even now. But there's going to be a full realization, a consummation of being in the presence of God Almighty that we will be able to experience in a different way than we have now. God will be with us. Oh, church, that word is faithful and true. We will be His people. He has predestined you to new life if you call upon Him. He has come, he has come after you. He loves you with an eternal love. And He says, I am going to allow you to be my people, my sheep. I want you in my kingdom. He will be our God. There will be no more death. These words are faithful and true, O oh beloved. I hope you're hearing them. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's no more crying. There's no more crying out of any kind. There's no more shouting. There's no, no, more, no more mourning or any of that. These words are faithful and true, beloved. These words are good. See, the devil will twist and try and manipulate the words of, of anything and everything. In, sec, in fact, he only can speak a lie. Nothing that comes out of the mouth of Lucifer has any truth in it. That's what we're told in the Word of God. That he can't speak any truth. And God is the opposite of that. God cannot speak a lie or he would cease to be God. He can only speak truth. And so he's writing to John, or he's speaking to John, and he's saying, write these things down. This is a truth. You can take it to the bank. This check is not going to bounce. Count on this word. I will be your God. You will be my people. There will be no more pain, no more crying or mourning or death. His words are faithful, they're reliable, for He Himself is faithful and reliable. These words that He speaks, I don't know how many of you have ever put this together about His Word, but the words of God are a revelation of Himself, are they not? Everything we read in the Word is a manifestation of His character, His nature. We read about love. This is God revealing Himself to you. We, we read about His holiness and why we have these laws in the Old Testament that they couldn't fulfill, they couldn't keep, so Jesus came and fulfilled them. And, and He said, I show you a better way. And, and this was to show us that, that God's holiness is, has a, a great requirement with all of these things. He talks about being in the Spirit. Well, what is, that, what is that talking about? Well, it's His nature. He wants you to partake and understand what it's like to, to be completely surrendered and submitted to Him in a place where you can worship Him from your innermost beings. And, and everything that we read in Scripture in some way is a revelation of God's very nature and His character. He speaks love. For God Himself is love. He speaks peace. The Holy Spirit's name is Comforter. He speaks truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. He speaks life. He also said, He is life. He speaks joy, for in Him is the fullness thereof. I hope you're listening. Can you hear Him? His words tell us that His sheep will know His voice. Are you listening yet? He's calling to you. Matey, these words are faithful and true. Ted, these words are faithful and true. Les, these words are faithful and true. I hope you're hearing them. Personalize them. He wants you to know that there will be no more death. 
There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will call you son. I sure hope you have ears to hear what saith the Lord. He's speaking faithful and true words to you today and every day. The world can't hear these words, can they? They can read them, but unless they have the Spirit of God inside of them, they can't hear them. It takes a spiritual ear to understand what God is speaking. Only the sheep of God know His voice. They can read about it, but they have blinders on their eyes. Their ears are deaf to the wealth and the comfort of God's Word. The world views truth as either subjective or non-existent. There is no absolute truth. This is why you can be whatever you want to be. You can wake up and change gender identity. Because it's a feeling. It's how do you feel today? But God says, I made you this way. In the beginning, He made male and female. The world is a little bit shady and gray on truth, but God's words are faithful and true. He is truth. The Amplified Translation says that these words are accurate, incorruptible, trustworthy, and genuine. God's words are to be trusted. They are reliable and dependable. If they were not, He could not be God, for He cannot lie. It is impossible for Him to do so. Church, hear the words of the Lord this morning. Bask in the truth of this comforting prophecy. Saturate, Saturate yourself in the reliability of this promise. Behold, I am making all things new. New heavens. That's skies, atmosphere, space, all that you can perceive. A new earth, the place where your feet land, where we walk, where we tread, where we work, where we live, where we dwell. New homes, new bodies, new life, all things. The life that you experience here, we, know, we think we know what life is, but he says, I'm making all things new. There's a revelation there. I'm going to give you a new life. New purpose. Whatever purpose you have here on this earth, he says, I'm making all things new. I'm getting, going to create or make a new purpose for you. New relationships. New clothes. New teeth. New hair. Yeah. I am making all things new. Not just material, spiritual. He's making all things new. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but this phrase is in the present tense. I am making all things new. This is God telling of His future consummation of His divine work of renewal and redemption. He is writing about it in the now. I am currently making them. He, he's telling about His redemptive work, which began before time started. I am currently making all things new. By the word of His mouth, God breathed, and everything came into being from nothing. 
in the beginning God created. He spoke and it was fashioned together. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in the same way that he's actively holding everything together, even now he is currently making all things new. We somehow have this idea, don't we, that everything happens sequentially. We're going to live on this earth until there's a day when it's all going to be burned up, and then he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. But that's not what his word says. He says, right now, as you're living amongst this earth, I am currently making all things new. He's outside of our timeline. Why is this important? Well, it's impossible to imagine, but God, the author and the creator of time, has been making all things new since before the first ones were created. In other words, making all things new was always part of his plan. It's not a plan B. Whoops! Better start over. How can I fix this? Before he created our heavens and earth, I don't know what else to call it, the old heavens and earth, the current heavens and earth, (laughs) he was already making the new heavens and earth. God, a God outside of time with infinite knowledge, could see the end from the beginning. And he says, I want you to take comfort in this, John, that everything that's going to happen, all of these plagues, all all of these horrible things that are going to be poured out on the earth, this is all part of my plan. But yet there's good news at the very end of it, isn't there, John? Behold, I am making right now, in the midst of all this chaos that you're about to see, unleashed on the earth. I want you to know and I want you to take this comfort to all the people of the church, all those that call upon me. I want them to know that I am right now making all things new. No matter what the devil throws at you, I want you to know and hear and take into your spirit that I am right now making all things new. Creating all things new is the Father's magnum opus. Church, he may have created the earth in six days and rested, but he never stopped making. And this leads us directly into the next verse. Of verse 6, he says, It is done, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Because God is outside of time, because he is the beginning and the end, because he implemented the beginning and manages the eternal, he can make future things now. He can make future things before. I'm afraid I'm not explaining it very well. Beloved, take comfort this morning in knowing that the future things that haven't happened yet can't not happen because he's already making them to happen. We may not have experienced them in our reality yet, but there's a day coming when we are going to be translated onto his divine timeline. He's viewing us outside of time, and he's watching things catch up with what he's already spoken into existence. Behold, I am making all things new. It might sound a little bit like a science fiction movie, but the timeline we are living in now is going to collide with the one that he has been making since before creation. If that hurts to think about, well, let's just move on. (laughs) He says, it is done. 
What does it remind you of? Jesus on the cross, Barbara. He says, Tetelestai, it is finished. Both the statement on the cross and what John witnessed in heaven are in a Greek tense called the perfect tense. It's a fairly uncommon verb phrasing in the New Testament, but in English it has no equivalent. What it is is two. It's a combination of two different tenses in the Greek. The present tense, which is punctiliar, it means it has a, a, a or excuse me, the aorist, which is punctiliar. It has a definitive time, a placement in time. Something will happen, has happened at this moment in time. Also combined with the present tense in Greek, which in Greek has this ongoing piece to it. So when we put these two together of it happening at an exact moment and ongoing, we get the perfect tense. Let me give you an example. Or we're talking about these. I'll just refer to these. When Jesus says, it is finished, it is more akin to saying this. It is finished and will continue to be finished. Nothing can undo that action. It is ongoing. In the same way, when God says, it is done, there is a moment where he says and declares over everything, it is done, but it will continue to be done forever and ongoing. This is what the perfect tense is. And it's important to understand that, that Jesus' assignments, that when he came to earth and he, he cries out on the cross, he says, it is finished. He's talking about those assignments which God gave him to do for his first coming. That does not mean that Jesus is done with his entire work. He was done when he came to earth, but he's coming back again. Even right now, Jesus is working. What is he doing at the right hand of the Father? He's making intercession for the saints. And he's reigning until all the enemies are put in subjection under his feet. Is that not right? But there's a second coming. There's a second time where Jesus is going to have to do some more work, isn't he? He's going to reign on his throne for a thousand years. He's going to work as a supreme judge. And after all these things, and only after all of those things are, are completely done and fulfilled, then he will cry out for one last time, it is done. On the cross he said, it is finished, and it will continue to be finished. And then Jesus, after all these things take place, which John has written, we will hear the words of Jesus, the Son of God, and the Father together saying, it is now done. Everything that I have planned is now completed and will continue to be completed forever and ever. Oh, there's not going to be any more hiccups in the timeline as we see it. Satan's not going to muster up some courage and rally some troops from the pit of hell and come back for a second attack, is he? God's not going to get bored with us in his presence forever and say, okay, well, that's enough. There's no more after that. We're going, we, we, we look forward to this. I hope you're getting it. We look forward to this, being able to see in spirit the end of God's plans. He said, this is it. This is what I've made everything for. This is the culmination of all of God's masterwork. And he looks over all of it and he says, it's time to relax and be together. It's done. My work is done. Beloved, we ought to look forward with hope, be full of comfort to the day that we, like John, will hear God himself declare it is done. He says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring the water of life without cost. 
Well, I wonder if you're thirsty this morning. For Jesus is the living water. Oh, glory. We drink of him metaphorically now so that we will soon drink of the heavenly water of life. This water is certainly a picture of God's supply and our spiritual need. And Jesus had much to say about satiating thirst, satisfying thirst. John 4.14, he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John 7.38, he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. See, when we drink of Jesus, we're receiving an everlasting hope. We're getting a taste, a metaphorical taste of his everlasting water within us. We're holding on to that salvation, that hope of his, what his word is saying, saying, okay, we're, we're, we're going to partake of it now, spiritually speaking, so that physically we can drink of that water later. But we ought not just to hold this hope on the inside. If you do, you're eventually going to burst. I studied civil engineering I really wanted to build structures when I came into Virginia Tech as a green student. I was really fascinated with dams. I still am. I shouldn't say was fascinated. I still am. Mind-blowing to me how these structures of concrete can hold back immense pressure of water. But that's not what God created us to be. Oh, you're in my kingdom. Hold as much water as you can, and you're going to be doing great. He says, out of your bellies will flow. He didn't say, I have created you as a massive reservoir, an ocean of water. Out of your bellies will flow rivers of living. We ought to be distributing that same hope and living water everywhere we go. We're not to be dams in the kingdom of God. We're to spill the water of Christ Jesus everywhere. There's supposed to be an outflow of life-giving sustenance to those around you. We are to create oases in the desert. Oh, I wonder if you've had a drink of Jesus. Do you remember David had that craving? He said, oh, that someone would give me that water to drink from the well of Bethlehem. And what happened? Some of his mighty men went up and they snuck into the camp and they brought him back some water and he refused to drink it, didn't he? But that's how we ought to be. Once you take a drink of the good stuff, amen? I don't want this lousy water. How many of you grew up on spring water or well water? Town water, you gotten used to it yet? My parents, every time they come visit, they're on a well. Every time they come visit, I have to bring out the Brita filter because dad hates the water. He can't even tolerate the ice cubes. I'm not making fun of my dad. I'm just telling you how it is. You get used to the good stuff. And me, I've lived, in, I've lived in the town long enough that I don't really even taste the chemicals they put in it anymore. Just, well, that's water. But David, he said, something's wrong with this water. I drank Jesus, and I want to only drink Jesus. That's how we ought to be. Once you get filled with that good, eternal, living water, nothing of the world can satisfy your thirst. Amen? Oh, to drink of the good stuff. Oh, that someone would give me the well, the water from the well in Bethlehem. Drink of Jesus today so that you can be filled with the river of life in the future. Don't fill yourself with the water of the world. 
Now there's more that we can read about this river in the next chapter, in verses, in chapter 22, 1 through 2. It's where the tree of life seems to get a sustenance from, this river of life. And you may remember that Ezekiel also writes about an end-time river, that's in chapter 47. But upon close inspection, it's fairly obvious that these two rivers are not exactly the same. But for the purposes of this message of comfort, what you need to know is that Jesus is going to satisfy your every need. He is allowing you to do it for free. Free water. This everlasting water does not have a charge. That's the beauty and simplicity of God's provision, Jesus Christ. The gift of salvation is free. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't steal it. You simply receive it. The river of life from which we drink is not for sale. I wonder if you've ever heard somebody say something that often happens with something somebody really wants, right? They'll say, how much is that? To my, to, you know, someone might reply, well, it's not for sale. Oh, everything's for sale for the right price. You ever heard that? Maybe you've said it. You wanted something. That's how my mom lived. I was teasing my mom about that last weekend when she visited. I'll never forget the time I was a young, probably in, I guess, middle school, Mom was driving back. She was a teacher at the school where I attended, and there were some wagon wheels out front of this guy's house, and she stopped by to ask them if she could have them. They didn't have a for sale sign. There wasn't a yard sale. They weren't in a scrap pile. They weren't by a trash can. There were wagon wheels leaning up against my house, and my mom decided she wanted those. So she stopped, pulled it in the driveway, and knocked on the door, waited for the man to come out, and says, are those for sale? He says, No. So she proceeds to ask about some split rail fencing that was on a pile. Can I have some of that? This is my mom. When she wants something, she asks for it. Embarrassed me to death. It's the childhood I grew up. Do you know there's going to be a whole bunch of people, they just think you can, oh, I don't want to do it Jesus' way. How about I just buy it? But I want you to hear the words. His water is not for sale. There's no amount of money in the world that could get you a drink from His living water. God's not interested in your money. The truth is, not everything is for sale. Sometimes we have a sentimental value. Sometimes there's another purpose behind something. We're not interested in money, even a million dollars. All the gold in the world couldn't even afford you one drop of God's living water. And yet, he says to you, these words are faithful and true now, it's free. What would the world be willing to pay for some of his living water? If I could just go out on the street, you know, maybe we'd put it in a special chalice or something, just market this as everlasting water. I wonder how much money I could collect. I know some people would be conned into it. And God says, it's free. You can't buy it, you can't earn it. And yet, for you, my chosen ones, I'm going to let you drink as much of it as you want. Let that be digested into your spirit, man. The water of life is free. But there is one stipulation to this. You must be thirsty. Not everyone will drink from it. Salvation 
cannot benefit anyone who does not crave it to meet his or her need. And those who are self-sufficient will not drink of this river. Those that have darkened understanding will not recognize their need for it. Those that deny the existence of God won't be saved. The only ones that get to drink freely of this water are those that are spiritually thirsty. And it's comforting to know that because we know Him and He knows us, that one day we will be able to drink of His water that can satisfy our thirst. There's lots of things in this life we say we want more of God. Maybe you're not there. Maybe there's some material things that you need to let go of in your life. Let go of them, beloved. Go after God. We were talking about blessing this morning in Sunday school. What is blessing? Well, blessing to me is to know God and to be known by Him. It's a great start. I'm not saying that there aren't other real blessings. He's blessed me with many things. He blesses me with a great family. He blesses me with a a wonderful home and, and two vehicles and a motorcycle, things I don't deserve. But to know God, that's, that's blessing. And he says, I'm going to fulfill all your desires and satisfy them forever. Whatever you're lacking, I will satiate. Drink of my water. Do you know when you get to heaven, there's going to be nothing that you're lacking or wanting? Oh, if people would just love me a little better. Oh, if I just had a little bit more of this or that. Oh, I wish I could eat those lemon squares. Wait till you drink of the water. All your needs and wants are going to be satisfied. Hmm. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, there are two promises here for the overcomer. Number one, we shall inherit these things. What things these aforementioned promises, all these promises we've read about in the last six verses. Number two, we will be God's son. Now, I first want us to consider the notion of overcoming. This is a term which is first introduced in this scroll, in this book, in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, as he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a favorite term of the Apostle John in the New Testament. He almost exclusively is the one who uses this word, overcomer. It's a word that is referring to those that are in Christ, those that will finish well. The root word is Nike, or more properly, Nike. Yes, that same swoosh that many of you have on your shoes. In Greek, there was, a, there was the, the god of victory, which was... Nike, and it had wings. That's where the swoosh comes from. It means to conquer, to come off victorious. And the reason that this word is worth a pause and reflection is so that we would be reminded of two more things. Firstly, we are in a battlefield. To him who overcomes. So many believers are only worried about themselves. Well, now that I know Christ Jesus, everything's hunky-dory. Now, we don't say that, do we? But I think a lot of times our actions speak that. We say, well, I've come to Christ. I'm good. I know where I'm going. That's all that matters. I'm just going to live my life. I'm just going to stay out of trouble. I'm just, Lord, help me stay out of trouble, maybe if you're spiritual, right? We ask for help. Lord, keep me pure and undefiled. I'm just going to live my little Christian life. I'm just going to pray. Lord, protect me from harm, and I'm going to die one day. I'm going to be caught up in glory with Jesus. That's a good Christian life, right? To him who overcomes, 
to him who is actively fighting in the battlefield that is all around them. May you not forget that we are warriors for the heavenly commander of the armies of God. You know, it's a great start to be in Christ. He's our Savior. Certainly, He's our protector. He's our shield and our bulwark. But we as believers ought to be tearing down strongholds. We ought to be pushing back darkness and performing miracles to Him who overcomes. The Christian walk is not just some passive battle that we have to unfortunately live amongst while the angels duke it out in the spiritual realm. Oh, it's easy to think that way, isn't it? Oh, God's going to win anyway. Now you're thinking like a Calvinist. Well, what's the point of evangelism if God's already predestined everyone who's going to be saved to be saved? No, He's using you to accomplish His will. He says, yes, there's a battle, but I want you on your knees praying for my heavenly kingdom to overcome the darkness that is in the world. I wonder if we've gotten a little lackadaisical. Oh, he who overcomes will inherit these things. Secondly, the reason I like wanted us to pause on this word, Nike, the victory that we do have as overcomers comes from being in Christ Jesus. Our victory comes by sparing, or by sharing, excuse me, in the spoils of the conquering king of kings himself. We must submit ourselves to the general. We must not simply enlist in his army. We must fight according to his means and methods. You're not an officer. You're a private. He gets to make the demands and the orders. We must submit ourselves to him, and then we will overcome Oh, God, I think we ought to fight this way. Oh, well, what if we did it that way? To him who overcomes, inherit these things. That's what it means to be an overcomer, not engaged only in battle, obeying the orders of the commander of the army of the Lord, but also recognizing our dependence in him for the victory. It's because we're in Christ Jesus that we will overcome, and he will grant us to eat of the tree of life and He will be our God, and we will be His Son. Now, we touched on this idea two weeks ago when we were looking at verse 3, but I'd like to consider another perspective of this very same promise. Not only will we be His people and He be our God, in addition to that, He makes us as sons. He makes us as part of the family. Now, ladies, the thought of being a son should not be a put-off. Elsewhere in the Bible, God says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Yes, there's a picture here. You can be a daughter. If you want to think of yourself as a daughter, great. Sonship is simply a picture of an inheritance of blessing, of taking his family name. We get adopted into the family. It's based on who we are in Christ. And yet we will, there will always be an important distinction between our sonship and Jesus Christ's sonship. He is the only begotten son. He is of a, he's born of God. We are born and we are adopted into the family spiritually, but Jesus is God's only son. Now, we get adopted into the family, we are heirs, and we receive all the same rights and benefits, but Jesus is distinct by nature, whereas we are adopted by a court order. Now, nonetheless, our sonship gives us the same rights and privileges. We will have the same access and intimacy with God the Father that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has. That's a very profound statement. I'll say it again. We will have the same access to God the Father that Jesus Christ has. 
you will inherit all these things, including God himself. We don't deserve any of this. You remember Jesus referred to his father as daddy when he prayed. He said, Abba, Father. That's what we get, part of what we get. We get to address God as Father in the same way because Jesus gives us the right to do so. To him who overcomes, we get to call God the Father, the sovereign Lord of eternity, Daddy. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now Paul teaches us in Ephesians that God predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. That's chapter 1, verse 5. I know much of this is familiar, but may the blessing of it not get lost in the familiarity. We know that all of this is according to his foreknowledge. As I said a couple weeks ago, Peter taught that God chooses us because he already knows the end from the beginning. I've preached on this truth many occasions. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Ephesians 1.11 says, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Beloved, I want you to know something. I want you to hear the words of this promise, this prophecy. We're looking at words that are spoken to strangers in a foreign land because we have been exiled because we have, or we have been exiled because we have rejected God. Here's the word to you. There's an inheritance coming your way. We're not talking about crowns and mansions, although it's going to be that too. Write these things down, John. There are going to be some sad and depressed exiles that need to be reminded of the good things that I have in store for them. Write these down so that my son's bride will finish well, so that they will not be stained and defiled by the world. Remind them, John that every overcomer will inherit all the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth, that they will inherit me, that the death and curse and pain, they're just temporary, that weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy is coming in the morning. Make sure they remember that everything I give to Jesus, I'm also going to give to them. Let them know that I have an infinite inheritance that I want them also to share in. Write these down, John. These words are faithful and true. So that my bride will take comfort in these unfulfilled words. That they would look, hope, look to the hope that lies ahead and finish strong and well. These are the comforting words that John was to write. And I pray will take root into your heart. and will be a blessing and a source of encouragement to you as you finish your days on this earth well. May we hold together, may we hold strongly to the word of God that he is not done with many things yet. The life that he began in you in Christ, through Christ Jesus, he is going to bring to a fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. We are going to taste of God himself.